Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Linda Flanagan, the author of the new book, Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania are ruining kids' sports. Linda has written for the Atlantic, Runner's World, uh, NPR's education site, MindShift. We're going to be speaking with Linda today about the world of kids' sports. Specifically, we're going to be looking at how athletics for kids has changed substantially over the past decade or two. The truth is that a lot of money is involved in kids' sports today, but actually research shows that the more money parents spend on their children's athletic career, the less enjoyment kids actually get out of it, and the more likely we are to see a number of different problems pop up. There's also been a shift in terms of specialization where instead of playing a variety of different sports, kids are encouraged really, really young to specialize in a single sport now, but this can create a lot of problems for kids as well. We're going to talk about the huge role that athletics play in the college admissions process. Many parents think of sports as a way to build character, but some recent evidence suggesting that the way many sports are played today can actually undermine character development. As the family invests more time and energy in the athletic pursuits of one child, it can have some really detrimental effects on the dynamics within the family. We're going to talk about the psychological phenomenon known as athletic identity foreclosure. And we're also going to look at some specific recommendations for what parents can do to counteract some of these negative outcomes and have our kids play sports in a way that stays positive and helpful for everyone. All that and more is coming up on the show today. Linda, thank you so much for being here. I just read Take Back the Game how money and mania are ruining kids' sports and why it matters. How did you sort of start getting interested in this? What caught your attention about the changes in kids' sports and why did you think that it was something so important to write a book about? Well, I guess I would say I first started being troubled by what I was seeing when I started watching my son play, my youngest, who's a good athlete. And I felt that I was too invested in it. And I could sense that I was like weirdly invested in his success and, you know, disproportionately delighted by his star turns and irrationally sad when he didn't play well. I was like, what is this? You know, and it bothered me. I could sense it was off. And then um, I've also been an athlete for most of my life. I mean, I still am run regularly, but When I began coaching, then I saw how youth sports had changed and become so much more serious and high stakes and intense. When I started coaching, it was in the early 2000s and it's only gotten more intense. I was just troubled by how it all felt very distorted. And 
as a result of that, I started poking around, doing some research and wrote some articles. And then basically that turned into a book. There's a lot of really interesting stories in the book, but also some really fascinating research on the changes in youth sports. And one of the big things is the money. It says here that in 2019, the youth sports industry was valued at $19.2 billion, which was an increase of more than 90% since 2010 and is actually more than the NFL. So that's a huge change in nine years to increase 90%. What's going on there? Or walk me through how that could be. Businesses recognized that parents have an interest in athletics and yeah. watching their kids play and encouraging them to become better athletes. And they recognized there was a market there and sure, began sure. investing. So, you know, there's the big, you know, equipment companies like um, sports equipment, Nike, Adidas, you know, mm. Under Armour, and then the media companies that make a huge amount of money televising this stuff. So ESPN, Sky, the Yes Network, and they've sort of honed in on an area of anxiety for parents, honestly. It's both an interest and a point of anxiety and have profited off it. And a good part of this is the sports tourism industry. This began, which really was launched in 1997, really, with Disney's Wide World of Sports, which is really so fascinating how that came to be. You know, Disney recognized that they were losing the teenage cohort with its theme parks. You know, the Magic mm. Kingdom was no longer so enthralling. And they figured, <laughs> well, well, what can we do to get teenagers here? So they took a gamble and built this wide, this sports complex, you know, 700,000 acres of playing fields for 60 different sports. It's a giant thing. And it's only grown. They even, and I got this from um, a man who was involved at, uh, at Disney, an executive there when they were making these decisions about building the complex. And they yeah. reckoned that even if it didn't make money, that the, it would get by just having the sports complex, it would draw families and that it would then put more heads in beds, which is how Disney makes money. And it proved yep, yep. to be extremely successful. Not only was it when there was an economic downturn, as there was after 9-11, when families started withdrawing and not feeling nervous about travel, they would continue to go to the wide world of sports for their kids' championship games because that was one area where parents didn't want to hold back. So the other municipalities picked up on this and recognized, hey, you know, why don't we try this? Why don't we build a giant sports complex? And as a result, they've brung up all over the country. Those complexes pull people. It generates all kinds of money. I mean, not universally successfully, I should add. I mean, a lot of these um, sure. complexes don't work, but they pull money from families to go. Families are encouraged to, you know, to travel to these places to play tournaments. And that's where all the money is. For parents, the biggest expense is the travel industry, the hotels and all that. Right. Well, and investment of time. Yes. Up to 20 hours a week by some, which sounds insane, but speaking to, you know, a lot of families here and it, it really adds up. It adds up. You spend a lot of time on the weekends, your hours evaporate. It really paints an interesting story in the book, how this growing industry then leads to all kinds of other things and changes in sort of the culture and in the way that we think about sports because it creates all kinds of pressures 
for all of these businesses that run on sports to make them seem more important and to sort of perpetuate this culture. It kind of trickles down, I guess, to families and to all of us. The great sports sociologist, uh, Jay Coakley, calls that the selling of specialization. That if you have these Mm. um, private club teams that start to recognize that parents want opportunities for their kids to play intense sports, then they have their own little infrastructure of coaches they need to pay and facilities to keep up. Those clubs, they need, it can't be seasonal. It can't be like lacrosse season is just in the spring. So as a result, there's an incentive on their part to say, well, you know, we're going to keep our coaches employed year round. We better have kids to coach. So it encourages the specializing, encouraging that, you know, the club owners encourage families to specialize in part to pay the bills. I just read about this Isaiah Berlin's famous division of people into two types, the fox who knows a little about a lot and the hedgehog who knows a lot about a little. The way youth sports have been monetized has compelled kids to burrow into one sport at an early age, making hedgehogs of them all. Athletic foxes aren't extinct, but they have become gravely endangered. Yeah, that's a reference to, you know, the multi-sport athletes. We now, for the most part, Kids are so strongly encouraged to take up one sport and to focus entirely on that, that they're just, and not only one sport, sometimes they're encouraged to focus on just one position in one sport, which is even narrower, so that the fox or the multi-sport athlete is no longer nearly as prevalent. We should also add that, you know, low-income kids who can't afford either the money or the time that these things cost are generally left out. You know, that's a whole other angle, a whole other dimension of the youth sports universe that's, you know, kind of unhealthy for all. I think an interesting byproduct of all this is as we have to invest more and more time, energy, and money in our kids' sports careers, then of course we just get more invested in them and we start to really care more or I guess, be more involved or concerned. Subsumed by. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it starts to just to take over more of our headspace and we get Mm -hmm. emotional about it and everything. And of course we can't help it. It's one thing when it used to be like kind of kids just would go off and play sports and it would just be more like a thing that they do for fun on their own. And now that it's, it's becoming like a family activity, the parents are shelling out all this cash and well, you know, spending 20 hours a week driving them around to practices and to tournaments, you know, in other cities and stuff like that, that, well, just naturally it becomes there's a lot more pressure from uh, mom and dad and that um, you really just get so much more yeah, consumed and invested. And I think that's a really interesting byproduct of all this. And you talk about why we do this and, you know, Parents say things like they couldn't possibly disappoint their sports-obsessed children and, you know, making sacrifices for their offspring, but that also um, an important factor that a lot of us don't admit to is status among our peers. We parents 
be right, latch onto our kids' virtuosity in sports and celebrate it as our own. And you kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier with your own son. With my own freakish reaction to <laughs> my nine-year-old basketball <laughs> skills. It is one of those um, subjects that we're not generally comfortable talking about in this country you know, as a whole, but also as insofar as it pertains to like our kids' activities and their sports or any of their successes that my parents have just gotten so unhealthily latched onto their successes and failures and just see them as a reflection of our own. And this is not just sports, I should add. It's just that sports are so visible and a child can have such visible success in sports. It's a natural place as the parent to feel so very proud and, you know, to have that glory reflected back on you. And, (laughs) but it is an uncomfortable thing and, and to acknowledge, I think. I do think the emotions that are on display in the bleachers and on the sidelines are often really about how we parents feel about this is embarrassing your child is benched or you know the coach ignores them or you know that's why parents get angry and because it does feel like it's a reflection on us and I think that's some extent that's unavoidable and it's not all bad I mean it's fine to feel proud of your children I don't mean to suggest that there's something pernicious about that but it's just when it gets exaggerated and out of proportion which is where I believe it is now And I think if we parents could maybe be a little more honest with ourselves about why we're doing this and like, okay, it's not really just because they love it necessarily. It's maybe because we love it too. And our lives get wrapped up in it. And, you know, we, our social life becomes, you know, the parents of the kids our child plays with, you know, it just becomes sort of suffocating for everybody, I think. But status is an awkward subject. And But I think there's no question that weighs heavily in how we think and feel about our kids' sports and why we want them to play. And I can tell you in my town, lacrosse is just huge. And, Mm. you know, lacrosse is one of those sort of blue blood sports, predominantly white. It's a great route to college or Division Three, especially. It's just the thing to do. The thing to do is to play lacrosse and you start your kids younger and younger. And, you know, I think they have travel teams here in my community in third grade. Oh, and I I think I told, uh, mentioned a story in the book about a friend of mine who offers this like low key lacrosse camp for kids, little kids and up through middle school, I think. And she tries to emphasize fun and just enjoyment and learning skills. She said, parents call and ask if they're too late. If their kindergartner is starting too late, should they have done this sooner? I mean, you know, that's just insane. But that's what has happened with the forces of specialization. They're just pressed kids to pick take up sports at, at younger and younger ages at a more serious level. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, because then how are they going to compete with the kids who already started in preschool and they're already working with coaches and they're learning those they're learning those skills and um, and what about the toddlers you know who've been out there with their lacrosse sticks (laughs) those who've been read lacrosse stories when they were in utero (laughs) Andy let me ask you did you play sports growing up I did play some sports yeah yeah soccer baseball basketball yeah then actually I didn't play lacrosse until high school I was resonating with you you said a lot of kids do start and kind of ninth 10th grade and things like that with lacrosse was it crazy where you were no yeah i do remember even with lacrosse then it was like yeah there was the camps in the off season and the coaches kind of to work with it was never ending that how 
much you could keep working on it if you wanted to be really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, my, mm-hmm. my school was, was not that good at it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, It was more just kind of fun. I just played because some of my friends were on the team and I thought mm-hmm. it'd be a fun thing. Well, you know, I, as we were talking about parental investment and stuff, I forgot to mention, you know, that there's a, a really good study done by Travis Dorch, who runs the Families and Sport Lab at Utah State, that found that there's an inverse correlation between how much parents spend and the child's enjoyment. So the more kids, the more parents so spend, the less kids enjoy. Well, you can imagine because they feel it's suddenly about, you know, why are you doing the sport? Because mom and dad really want me to do well. There's, you know, if they're spending this much, I really better perform. It's bound to have an effect on the child's enjoyment. You talk about some really interesting research as well about how it affects the whole family sometimes. The more families are investing in sports and then they start to get into having to travel a lot and that kind of involves really splitting up the family a lot on mm-hmm. weekends and taking you know one kid to this tournament in this city, another one to that city. One parent will take the kid or really instead of doing things together as a family, you're splitting yourselves up and going here and there and everywhere and repeating that over and over again every weekend for months mm-hmm. and months of the year has got to have a huge impact on families. Well, and you know, and that presupposes like a two-parent household family. And I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's about half the families in this country are not you know, two-parent. There's a lot of single mothers, single fathers, multiple families mixed up, and uh, the travel tournaments and the expectation that kids and families can do this puts enormous pressure on families. And if you're a single parent, I mean, it's, it's essentially a barrier to entry for anyone who doesn't have a lot of money and a lot of time, because if you're a single parent and say you have three kids, I don't know how you're going to manage that. I've also thought in those families where say one kid's into sport and the other two aren't, for example, my family, where my older two were not especially interested, you know, quasi, sort of vaguely interested, but not invested in it. it, wasn't their main thing, and my younger one was, that adds a weird dynamic among the siblings. Why are the parents, why are we spending so much time going to his games, and, you know, coaching him and taking care of his interests? And, you know, kids are acutely aware of any kind of imbalance in parental attention or affection. It's unavoidable if one child plays sports and the others don't or have sort of non-monetary interests like reading. There's also a lot of pressure coming from the benefits that athletes get in the college admissions, the whole race for getting into selective colleges. I thought this was really interesting, some of these statistics you have in here about how large the benefits are. Like Harvard confirmed that athletes admitted are significantly weaker than ordinary applicants, and athletes are like 14 times more likely to be admitted. That's what came out in that recent uh, lawsuit against Harvard a couple of years ago. It was a group that was alleging discrimination against Asians in their admissions process. And the colleges are very reluctant to come forth with any 
they they guard this data very carefully, how they go about making their decisions and all that. But every now and then it get it's you know leaks out, and this lawsuit is what enabled this information to become available and analyzed. And it's plain as day that the athletes have an enormous edge in admissions, and parents have recognized this. Nothing is sure in college admissions, but every year the coaches need to field teams and they need new people. So that that's one thing for sure. So it's kind of a, a in a way, it can become a strategy to get into those schools and not just Harvard, any of them that have teams and most schools do. And I, you know, I've spoken to many families and I think most parents, when they start getting their kids into sports, it, it doesn't start as well, I want my seven-year-old to play travel lacrosse so that she'll have better odds of getting into Amherst. No, I don't think that's no, the original no. thinking. It's, I think it's generally, right. you know, well-intended and sports are good for you and, and moving around and teams, those are all great. But then it kind of morphs because it takes over parents' lives and kids' lives that then it becomes, well, at least she'll get into a better college. And then that almost by default becomes the rationale for continuing to play and continuing to sacrifice yeah. so much. And continuing to sort of escalate the levels of competitiveness or, yeah. well, mm-hmm. should, should we pay for this, you know, personal trainer that they're recommending? I don't know. It's going to cost a lot, but it might really, you know, help her stay competitive and maybe get a scholarship that would be really helpful or get into a better school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I might, yeah. It's probably worth it. We should do it. I think it, it plays into the calculus a lot um, yeah. in terms of what, you know, what you're willing to do or what sacrifices you're willing to make. And I mean, wow, what wouldn't you sacrifice for your child's future? So when that's part of the equation, it maybe makes us make decisions we wouldn't be making otherwise if it was just really about the sport and whether mm-hmm. they enjoy the sport and well, just the other day, I was speaking to a woman who's got three kids and they're all on this train and they're all basically in high school or first year college. And yeah. she, she was going over how much they time they spent, you know, running around, driving hither and yon and splitting up the family and disappearing all, on every weekend. And I asked her if they would continue to do this, if colleges suddenly magically eliminated the recruiting and the uh, admissions advantages. <laughs> and you know she kind of thought for a second and said yeah we would we wouldn't want to play this intensely we wouldn't be doing this it's because of the prize at the end which is a real prize for some family and you know for some kids it will be an edge in admissions if that edge were gone i think the whole thing would like come collapsing down right yeah totally Hey, we're here today with Linda Flanagan talking about some disturbing trends in middle school and high school athletics. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Another study came out 2014 also that showed this was so shocking to me that D1 athletes who were studied later in life versus their less active peers. D1 athletes had lower quality of life than their peers who hadn't been in worse sleep, you know, worse mood, worse physical functioning. And I think that's so shocking to me. I think the reason it's important to miss some games is because, you know, you want, it sends the message to your child that this is your activity. It's not mine. It's not your job to entertain me. And also to kind of carve out to reclaim your life as an adult. 
it's hard when you have yeah. something that's you're like you loved as maybe you played baseball growing right. whatever yeah. you're like a great football player you want your kids to like oh it did so much for me and and I was guilty of this to some extent with my kids saying, have you thought about running? <laughs> and, and that just makes them dig in their heels more. Oh, no, mom. <laughs> like, shut up already. But, it's, it, you know, it just has to come from them. It has to be their interest, not your interest, because they are separate yeah. people. And the sooner we recognize that, the better off we'll all be as a family. You think of yourself as not hey, I'm Linda, I'm a mother, I'm a writer, I, I'm a good friend, I like animals, I run. You think, I'm Linda, I'm a runner. That's what I am, that's who mm. I am. This is really hard for young people, especially because, you know, it's great when things are going well and you're winning and you're healthy, but it's really a problem for people when they're suddenly are unable to compete or play, for, usually due to an injury or something that can be really devastating because you're like, who am I? If I can't play lacrosse, if I can't run, who am I? I really understand this because I have felt this at times in the past with my own running. When I was really running a lot every day, eight miles a day, and it felt so necessary that I really worried about how I would handle it when I got, when I, you know, if I got hurt, I was really worried about injuries. And then when I occasionally did get hurt it was like oh no what am I going to do if you're a young person and you're just trying to figure things out that's really hard and it can cause all kinds of mental health problems understandably I can relate to that (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a happy person when I can't run want to hear the full interview sign up for a subscription today you get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.